In early January, I received a surprising call from Frederick Community College. It turns out they had a 15-week undergraduate world religions class with, you know, over uh, 10 students enrolled, but they didn't have an instructor. So I said yes to teaching the class, both because I have most of what I'll need to facilitate each class session from various sermons and courses I've offered previously, and because it's also exciting to have the opportunity to accompany students in an exploration of the world's religions. Our first live Zoom class session was this past Wednesday, and our focal question for session one was, what is religion? I also added two crucial follow-up questions that some of you may recall us exploring together. Who benefits from how we define religion and who decides? You get very different answers to the question, what is religion, depending on whether you ask, for example, a fundamentalist Christian, a Wiccan from the pagan tradition, or a member of an ethical humanist congregation. A fundamentalist Christian might tell you that religion is primarily about believing the right thing about Jesus. A pagan, however, might tell you that religion is more about performing a ritual correctly. Different still, an ethical culturist might tell you that religion is about taking the next right action. If we seek to develop a definition of religion that accounts for all of these worldviews and more, we begin to realize that it really matters who is in the room. And delightfully, there's quite a bit of diversity in the room in those FCC classes. As the saying goes, if you aren't at the table, you might be on the menu. Along these lines, I'd like to invite us to spend a few minutes this morning reflecting on this truth from the perspective of the Buddhist tradition. Similar to the question of what is religion generally, you can get very different answers to the question, what is Buddhism? Depending on whether you ask, for example, a conservative Asian monastic, a secular Western mindfulness teacher, a New Age mystic, or we could go on. This dynamic has been on my mind because this month, because apparently I'm a glutton for punishment, I also have started a two-year meditation teacher training program through Buddhist Geeks. Similar to Unitarian Universalism, Buddhist Geeks takes what could be called an integral approach to the Buddhist tradition, uh, seeking to integrate wisdom from many diverse sources in the past, letting go of that which no longer seems helpful in today's world, and being open to the best of modern science and to all we're still coming to know in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world. You see, the closer you look at any of the world's religions, the clearer it becomes that the reality is so much more complex than any one monolithic tradition could ever cover. And we're usually on more accurate ground if we speak in the plural instead of the singular. So about Buddhisms rather than Buddhism, Christianities, Judaisms, Islams, Paganisms. While there are also still times when it's just simpler to use the singular as the umbrella term, using the plural periodically is a good reminder that each of the world's religions contains this wide host of diverse traditions, practices, and beliefs, regardless of the fundamentalists who will try and tell you that their way is, of course, the only right way. 
So let me share my screen with you to give you a few visualizations of how much Buddhism has grown and changed over the course of centuries. And we could actually do the same for each of the world's religions. So here's the first slide. Even at the beginning, 2,500 years ago, when Siddhartha Gautama, uh, the historical Buddha, sat down under a Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, India, he was not in a vacuum. It wasn't just like the only thing happening. In many ways, what we now think of as the Buddhist tradition began as a reform movement within the much older milieu of the Hindu traditions. And although there are strong family resemblances between the various strands of Buddhism, there are also real differences from the ways um, Buddha Dharma has evolved and adapted within various cultures. And by the way, this slide, like that allegedly, of course, really is the Bodhi tree, that, that the historical, you can, you can see it today in Bodhgaya, India. Uh, the centrality of advanced, um, so think about the difference between the centrality of advanced concentration states or jhanas in the Theravadan Thai forest tradition. That has this whole different set of um, social focuses and aesthetics compared to, for instance, the just sitting approach of Japanese Zen known as Shikantaza or Tibetan Vajrayana, that with its mantras and its mandalas and its visualizations of deities. That's different still. Likewise, we could add into the mix the stripped down secular mindfulness-based stress reduction movement found here in the West. There are many more Buddhisms than these four examples, but I think even here you can begin to notice the contours of significant similarities as well as significant differences. I should also also add that the situation is often less a matter of different Buddhisms being better or worse. That's, I'm not trying to get you to choose which one is better or worse. It's more of each tradition having its various strengths and weaknesses. And there's some real advantages to going really deep into one or more traditions, as well as being conversant with many lineages. And part of why I'm bringing this up is that in recent years, I've been grateful to notice the increasingly prominent influence within Western Buddhism of the Black radical tradition, and to see an increasing number of people of color being trained as meditation teachers and publishing Dharma books. As we've been exploring, it makes a difference who is in the room, who is doing the teaching, and what content is being taught. In general, Dharma is an important word with a lot of nuances that make it difficult to render into English in a simple way, but for our purposes this morning, uh, two common translations often used in the Buddhist tradition or Dharma as meaning something like truth or reality. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait, aren't truth and reality the same regardless of who is teaching and well, that's the case to a certain extent. As Philip K. Dick used to say, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. At the same time, quantum physics is one among many scientific insights, which has shown us that subjectivity matters too. As with the glistening facets of jewels strung in a web, classically known as Indra's web, that illuminate differently depending on the light and angle from which you are looking, it's often the case that different angles and facets of the Dharma, of truth and reality, are revealed depending on who is in the room doing the teaching and the learning. 
So a few slides back, I first showed you the book that uh, first really started to challenge me to think more deeply about this truth from the perspective of dismantling white supremacy culture in Western Buddhism. It's titled Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. It was published in 2016 by three Black meditation teachers. Angel Kyoto Williams, the second of only three Black women Zen senseis and the author of Being Black, Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness. Also, it was written by uh, Lama Rod Owens, who writes powerfully and compellingly about the intersection of his experience as a Black American, a gay man, and a Buddhist Lama who's completed the traditional three-year retreat, not like a one-week retreat or in part, like literally on retreat for three years straight in Tibetan Buddhism. And also Jasmine uh, Sedulia, a longtime meditator who's a professor of Africana studies at Vassar College. They were inspired to have a series of public conversations about the intersection between radical Black thought and the Buddhist tradition in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I should add, for those of you interested in following up on some of these strands, there's another really important trailblazing book that came out the year before uh, Radical Dharma um, from the Zen tradition. It's titled The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender by Zinju Earthly Manuel. Uh, for anyone wondering, of course there is real benefit that can come from engaging the Buddhist tradition for, um, just you know, it, primarily or initially for one's own personal benefit, freedom, and liberation. But there's so much more that is possible. And to that larger end of increasingly aspiring as much as possible for the collective liberation of all sentient beings in which we all get free, let me say a little more about Radical Dharma. Sensei um, Angel Kyoto Williams has said that Radical Dharma is radical for at least two reasons. First, etymologically, radical refers to the Latin word radix, which means root. So Radical Dharma is about weeding out the root the source of our problems, individually, but also socially. And that word root has a particular resonance in the Buddhist tradition in regard to what are known as the three kleshas, the three poisonous roots of ignorance, hatred, and greed. The good news is that there are also three corresponding antidotes, wisdom, compassion, and generosity. We meet ignorance, with passion, we overcome hatred with compassion and greed with generosity. Radical Dharma is also radical in the sense of being part of the black radical tradition, which emphasizes that the liberation of black people is one major key to collective freedom in which we all get free. The logic is if we really do change the systems and structures of society so that black people get equal and free, then very likely whatever changes need to be made to make that possible are going to be to wide benefit to all. As the saying goes from the indigenous rights movement, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Here, Using the lens of the three poisonous roots, we can begin to better understand that subtitle of the book, Radical Dharma, talking race, love, and liberation. We can begin to better perceive the call to raise awareness 
about the ignorance of racism. We know that racism is a social construct. We are 99.9% the same at the DNA level. We know on the other side of the um, human genome project, but it's gotta be socially deconstructed. We can't just say, oh, it's wrong and be rid of it. The persistence of hatred, what's sometimes called racial animus, and the motivating role of greed, the long history of enslaving and exploiting black bodies for capitalist projects. These are all poisonous roots in our society today, this ignorance, this hatred, and this greed. And then we can begin to weave in the antidotes that can point us toward a more hopeful way forward through wisdom, doing things like diversity, equity, and inclusion training. So beloved conversations and other things like that that we've offered here at UCF and will continue to offer. Um, working on compassion. Jen talked some about loving kindness practices in the spoken meditation. So widening circles of inclusion across difference. And finally, generosity of spirit, knowing things like a loss of privilege and entitlement that is not the same as reverse discrimination. So having a generosity of spirit. Lama Rod Owens has written further about five principles of practicing radical dharma. Radical Dharma is contemplative. It's about slowing down and noticing when you're getting caught up and hooked in uh, habitual patterns. Uh, when I did a three-year training program in spiritual direction, they used to say, we're going to start slowly so that later we can slow down. Radical Dharma is embodied. It's, some people, a lot of their meditation is neck up. And so it's embodied. It gets into your heart. It gets into your body. It's liberatory. It's about freedom and choice and self-determination. It's collective. It's not just about individual freedom. It's about um, the social and the group. It's prophetic. It's about truth-telling in the sense of a truth and reconciliation process. These five points are a beautiful example of what we can learn about the Buddhist tradition when it is taught from the particular perspective of the Black radical tradition. And one reason that I scheduled this topic for this particular Sunday is that starting on this Tuesday at 7 p.m. and continuing for the next 11 weeks, our intern minister Jen and I will be co-leading this chapter-by-chapter -chapter study of a recent report released by the Unitarian Universalist Association's Commission on Institutional Change titled Widening the Circle of Concern. So many of you will recall um, along those lines, you know, the reason this report got published, they spent three years studying this report from 2017 to 2020, because what happened in 2017 is that Reverend Peter Morales, the first Latino president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, resigned in the wake of a hiring controversy about a pattern of bias over time that tended to favor hiring white male ministers for UUA positions and tended to pass over people with historically marginalized identities. It's not that we never hired people with marginally uh, marginalized identities, but that there, there was this pattern of bias. And as we've talked about extensively in previous sermons and workshops, this trend is just about so much more than individual prejudice or lack thereof. We really get this wrong if we make like Peter the villain of this story. Uh, Peter did great things in his presidency, you know, a fierce advocate for immigration justice. I could go on about that. I think part of it is that he just realized I am not the right leader for this time. You know, I, I haven't done what needed to be done. I'm going to step out of the way. So it's, it's really also not about conscious 
intentional, what I sometimes call aspirational white supremacy, you know, people that are being white supremacist on purpose, like storming the Capitol on January 6th, you know, carrying Confederate flags. We're not talking about aspirational uh, white supremacists. What we're talking about is a much more insidious, subtle, unconscious bias of white supremacy culture. It's more of just like the culture we're swimming in. Let me give you a quick example I hadn't planned on talking about, but Megan and I have been watching old seasons of Top Chef on Hulu, uh, and we were watching uh, Restaurant Wars from the New Orleans episode. This is like back in 2006, and it was just really striking. Two teams of five, pretty diverse. Each team happened to have one straight white person, one straight white male on it. And the executive chef that, you know, who volunteered to be executive chef, both, both teams were led by the single straight white. It, that's just an example of like, it's just, it's not that they didn't do a good job or a bad job. That's, it, this just kind of things happens over and over and over. It's this, this kind of unconscious bias um, toward um, traditionally privileged groups. In practice, that means if historically white institutions don't intentionally take steps to change their systems and structures to be more welcoming, diverse, and multicultural, then the tendency will be, despite our best intentions otherwise, will be to unintentionally revert back to practices that just tend to support historically privileged individuals and groups. And it's our eighth principle that targets precisely this tendency to call us by calling us to quote actions that accountably dismantle racism and other institutions and ourselves and other oppressions and ourselves and our institutions. Now, many of you likely know the saying that one definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And it's important to remember that in the history of our Unitarian Universalist movement, um, you know, when we've had lots of engagement and lots of successes with many progressive causes over the centuries, you know, we've made major commitments to anti-racism, anti-oppression, and multiculturalism in the past, but it's important to note they've not always resulted in the diverse, beloved community that we dream about. Now, if you really want to dig into the details, there's an excellent record in a book titled The Arc of the Universe is Long, Unitarian Universalist Anti-Racism and the Journey from Calgary. That is a doorstop of a book. Also, it's super interesting, uh, but because many of you may not read it, let me just tell you a little bit about why do they talk about the journey uh, from Calgary. That book traces our history uh, in UUism, in anti-racism from 1992. We had a general assembly in Calgary, Canada from 1992 through 2006. So over that almost 15 year period, it became clear that the hoped for changes that we had committed to around anti-racism in 1992, that had not come to fruition 15 years later in 2006. The primary reason is that we had collectively failed to make the needed institutional changes to put different systemic supports in place. And so when you don't put in new like scaffolding, you, you sort of, revert back to the old scaffolding. That's just what tends to happen. So we intent unintentionally drifted back more toward a white monoculture instead of forward toward a multicultural beloved community. 
So keeping in mind what we just talked about, about that failed 15-year period of 1992 to 2006, let's fast forward another 10 years to 2017, and you get another decade from 2006 to 2017 of pent-up frustration, we're not getting where we want to be, and then you add in the heightened attention to racial justice from the Black Lives Matter movement starting in 2013, and one result was sort of a powder keg waiting to explode in 2017 that led to the resignation of President Morales. So even though we had elected Bill Sinkford as the first black president of the UUA, and he served from 2001 to 2009, did lots of good things. We elected Peter Morales as the first Latino president of the UUA, served from 2009 to 2017, did lots of good things. Neither of those elections were sufficient to address wider systemic problems, just as electing Barack Obama as the first black president of the United States it turns out that didn't end systemic racism in our country, right? So not surprisingly, back to uh, the focal topic of this morning, we can similarly trace these same dynamics playing out in Western Buddhism. We could also do this in other, other religions. It just happens to me I know more about Buddhism and uh, Unitarian Universalism than I know about other things. So let me share my screen with you just to say a few more things. So if you want to learn um, a little more about this, uh, one really great place to start is I highly recommend Anne Gleig's invaluable book, American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity. I'll probably do a whole sermon in the future, maybe next year about that book. Really great. For our purposes, I'll limit myself to one case study of the influential two-year community Dharma leaders training program that is at Spirit Rock a widely regarded and highly influential retreat center in the Western Buddhist tradition. It's just north of the Bay Area in California. In the first decades of the 21st century, two of their cohorts, so you know, really training the future leaders of Western Buddhism. Uh, so if you look at their community Dharma leader training program in 2004 to 2006 and in 2007 to 2009, both of those were an average of 6% Black Indigenous or people of color. Then they made some intentional institutional changes like we're talking about making in the UUA and have already started to make and are talking about at UUCF and have already started to live into that there's more to do. And what happened is that in 2010 to 2012, those cohorts in 2013 to 2015, all of a sudden you saw this sixfold increase, 37% Black Indigenous people of color being trained. 40% Black Indigenous people of color being trained, together with similar systemic changes at peer institutions like the Insight Training Center in Washington, you know, up in Barrie, Massachusetts, and the center there. The result will mean an extraordinary increase of 330% of the number of teachers of colors in the Insight meditation community. Institutional changes included reserving spots for people of color, learning tools of intercultural competency to create more inclusive and welcoming spaces for a wider diversity of people. It meant funding scholarships specifically for people of color. If you're curious to learn more, there's a great 10-page appendix in Larry Yang's overall important book, Awakening Together, the Spiritual Practice of Inclusivity and Community. And we've already seen some similar progress, again, at UUCF and the UU movement um, broadly, particularly through uh, the leadership of organizations like Black Lives of UU. And we have, of course, so much more to do, though, to fully um, live into turning our dreams into deeds and building the world we dream about. 
So if you'd like to be part of the process, I, I really do hope you'll consider joining me on one or more Tuesday evenings. It's great if you can read the book. If you can't, we value uh, your presence either way and participation. So for the next 11 Tuesdays at 7, you know, the link's right on our homepage. Show up if you can. If you want to be on the email list, email me, minister at frederickuu.org. And if you're curious about learning more about radical dharma in particular in the Buddhist tradition, let me recommend a few books that are accessible places to start. I mean, of course, you can read the radical dharma book, but also more recently, uh, Lama Rod Owens has this new book, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. There's often a misunderstanding, and Jen talked about some of this earlier, that spirituality and anger don't mix. In contrast, Lama Rod powerfully reminds us that it is right to be angry at injustice, at children in cages, for example. You should be angry about that. That anger can be a clue that my individual boundary has been violated or our societal boundaries have been violated. Anger lets us know that a boundary has been violated and that emotional power can fuel our work for justice. And especially when channeled through love, anger can what anger can point us to is the truth of Dr. Cornel West's words that tenderness is what love feels like in private, but justice, justice is what love looks like in public. You have systemic love, making systems. That's what beloved community is about. Um, just systems that treat people lovingly and compassionately support them, which you've heard me describe as a stable floor for all so that everyone can live a life of dignity. Uh, in addition to Lamarad's Love and Rage, I recommend uh, Sevene Selassie's new book, You Belong, A Call for Connection. She describes herself as a nerdy black immigrant tomboy Buddhist weirdo. And related to our UU Seventh Principle about the interdependent web of all existence, she said the subtitle of her book could be A Call to Remember the Inherent Connection with Everything Within You Which Already Exists. Her book is an invitation to cultivate this felt sense of interdependence, not an intellectual sense of the interdependent web, but to really existentially feel that in your body, in your spirit, in your heart. Uh, so check out her book if you're interested in that. Beyond books, for those of you who feel like you could use some support in starting, restarting, or catalyzing your meditation practice, I'll also give a shout out to the 10% Happier app. There's lots of great meditation apps out there, but 10% Happier in particular, you know, meditation for fidgety skeptics is their tagline, but they're also doing a great job um, centering excellent teachers of color. For now, I'll give the final word to another wonderful uh, meditation teacher of color, Ruth King, from her essay in the excellent new anthology, Black and Buddhist, what Buddhism can teach us about race, resilience, transformation, and freedom. She says, this is my advice. Practice the Dharma, then do your best. Grieve, rest. Keep hate at bay and join with others for contemplation and refuge. You know, you don't have to do it alone. It's part of what we're about right here in this moment and these Sunday services and all that we offer. Don't get too far ahead of now. This moment is enough to digest. Sit. Breathe. Open. Don't be a stranger to moments of freedom that may be flirting with you. Let them happen when they come. Allow distress to teach you how to be more human.
Sit in the heat of it until your heart is both warmed and informed. And interestingly, this last line of King's essay, which was written, you know, came out before Amanda Gorman's poem, she says, then make a conscious choice to be a light. In a few moments, we will sing together, filled with loving kindness. Verse one begins with the first person pronoun, I. We often need to start with ourselves, putting our own oxygen mask on first. Then you'll notice verse two shifts from I to that second person pronoun, you. And that can be, just ask yourself, who does that you need to be this morning? Could be somebody on your heart, could be somebody you're wrestling with, could be a neutral person, but sing to whoever that you needs to be for you. Finally, verse three invites us to experiment with that third person plural, we. And make that we as wide as is possible for you this morning, moving us over the course of that song through ever widening circles of inclusion. As we move from verse to verse, notice what it feels like in real time to experience that shift from I to really taking care of yourself to you offering love to others, to we, as wide as you can make that we, as wide even as all sentient beings. Notice that as we sing together, filled with loving kindness.